And it starts with a conversation. Starting point. starting point small group begins in two Sundays on October 12th but next Sunday at 9 o'clock we are going to have our orientation so if you want to know more about that group please do attend the orientation next Sunday at 9 o'clock in the fireside room in the lobby now I would like to welcome uh, Pastor Rex and uh, as we begin the first part of our series what does God expect from me so let us welcome Pastor Rex. What does, does God expect from me is a nine-part sermon series on the Ten Commandments. Wait, nine parts, Ten Commandments? Woe unto thee, O Israel! You have sinned a great sin in the sight of God. You are not worthy to receive these Ten Commandments. We will not live by your commandments. We are free. There is no freedom without the law. Did you carve those tablets to become a prince over us? Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come to me. We wanted to find out whether people in our area could name all Ten Commandments. So we sent our lead pastors out into the community to get the answer. Can you try to list all Ten Commandments for us? Um, I could, but they're summed up in two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Awesome. How many commandments did Moses come down off the mountain with? Ten. Excellent. <laughs> Can you name any of the Ten Commandments? Uh, yes. Uh, uh, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, uh, covet thy neighbor's wife. <laughs> um, That's specific. <laughs> <laughs> That, that one always sticks out for some reason. Um, Lord, I got the no strange guys before me. Number one. Number two, the Sabbath day? Or is that the third one? Uh, the, keep holding the Sabbath well, the, day. The, the, the first, first three are God. The rest of them are, I know, the rest of them are elsewhere. Right, the first fourth, one is... The fourth is father and mother. Fifth is the don't kill. Sixth is no adultery. Seventh is... Uh, no stealing? Seventh? I'm not, I'm not sure. Well, you, you are saying bear, them. Eighth, bear for, no, don't bear false witness for the eighth. No covenanting thy neighbor's wife. No covenanting thy neighbor's goods. Ninth and tenth. All right. It's good stuff. It's interesting what people have to say when asked about the Ten Commandments. But let me begin today with a true story that happened a number of years ago. I, I, I had the opportunity to talk some years ago with a man who was cheating on his wife. I'll call him Zach, not his real name. But his wife had found out about this and was just devastated. And she asked me if I would speak to him. And because I knew him well, because he was... Uh, uh, had been involved in a number of Bible studies and things, I agreed to talk to him. And as we got into the conversation, his language became very raw, and he began to curse me for challenging his moral choices. And I said, now, Zach, let, let me ask you something. You've read the Bible. I know you have. And let me ask you, what is your understanding of what God expects from you 
regarding your responsibility with your wife, with your family. Can, can you just share with me what your understanding is of that? And he didn't really answer my question, but he gave an answer that I have heard literally dozens and dozens of times through the years. Here's what Zach said. He said, I've prayed about this, and my God wants me to be happy. He knows my needs. He, he knows that I'm not happy right now in my marriage. He knows what's going on, and my God wants me to be happy, and I have peace about this. Now, we'll come back to the Zach story a little bit later in the message. But where do you go to find out what God really expects from you? Do you turn to the New York Times best-selling book list and get it there? Do you read it from the newspaper, from the talk show, from late-night TV, from your most popular radio host, from your closest friends? Do you get it from your conscience? Where do you go to determine what God really expects from you regarding all the areas of life? Well, today, we begin a brand new series on the Ten Commandments, and guess what? Here's the coolest thing about the series. It's only nine messages. How can that be? I find that kind of humorous myself. A series on the Ten Commandments with only nine messages. Well, here's why. We're going to cover two of them today because they kind of go together very closely. No other gods before me and no idols. Now, some of you may be wondering, wow, why a series on the Ten Commandments? Pastor, I thought we lived in a post-Christian world, and here in the capital region, we're in the most post-Christian, post-modern area of our country. That means that people don't want rules and regulations. They don't want moral laws to govern their lives, right? So why would we talk about that? Two reasons. One, I think our country really needs it right now, quite honestly. You know, for well over 200 years now, God has blessed this country in spite of all of its faults and failures and, and wrong ideas and, and corrupt leadership through the years. God has blessed this amazing country with prosperity, and that indeed continues. But in a democracy like this, if we don't have a moral consensus at the core, democracy becomes difficult. John Adams, one of the main framers of our Constitution, said, our Constitution was written for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for any others. He was saying that, look, if the majority is not really moral, we got a problem because we'll be voting all kinds of laws and people into office that don't represent what God really desires and expects. I'm concerned about our country. I don't want to sound melodramatic, but I literally tremble when I think about the direction that our country is going morally. Our country needs this. But secondly, I want to preach this series because we need it individually. You see, the problem with many of us today, if I could just be very personal for a moment, is we don't really appreciate the amazing grace of God in our lives. Can we just be real about it? And, and the reason we don't appreciate all that God has done for us in forgiving us of our sins, are you listening, 
is that we don't think we really needed it that much. Most people, when you ask them and really talk, they, they, they sound like they think they're actually pretty good. But when we study God's law, you see, the straight edge of the law shows us how crooked we really are. We need to have a good grasp on God's commandments so we can really appreciate what God has done for us in Christ. Let's suppose that you have a nephew who's going to come to visit you in August. And you get a bright idea. You, you decide, look, my nephew's coming. He's just a young man. I want to go take him to the Saratoga racetrack. It's not that you're into gambling. You just want him to see those beautiful horses run. You want him to experience all of the ambiance and environment of, of Saratoga. And so you get the most amazing seats. Your nephew goes with you. And you've got these prime, and I mean prime box seats. They're amazing. It's unbelievable. And uh, you're there, and you're just so convinced that he's going to absolutely love this. This will be a no moment he never forgets. But after about 25 minutes, you can tell he's bored. He's fidgeting and obviously doesn't want to be there. And he looks at you kind of in a whiny voice and says, how long do we have to stay? And you, it suddenly hits you. He has no appreciation for the racetrack, for the history of this place, for all that's gone on here. He has no appreciation for the people around him in this environment. And so he's not very grateful for it. And that describes many Christians today. We don't really understand what God has done for us in Christ because we don't really understand the enormously high standards that God has set in his law. So let's jump in today, and let's look at these first two commandments today. God says, no other gods and no idols. Let's pick it up right here in verse 1. I'm going to read these off the screen. We're looking at Exodus chapter 20, if you want to find this in your, your own Bible. And uh, I'm going to read these verses, and, and I want you to listen closely because we're going to unpack these verses a little bit today. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now I'm going to sit down here for just a moment. And I want us to unpack for just a while those two commandments. First, I want to talk for a moment about the identity of God. If you're going to take a class, one of the first questions you want to know is, who is the teacher? What is the teacher like? Because that's going to tell you a lot about the style of this class and how you're going to go about learning. If you get opportunities to go play Division I NCAA basketball, you're, one of your first questions is, well, who's the coach? What is the coach like? Because the coach 
is going to dictate the style of play, what your involvement's going to be, how well you can flourish there, right? You really want to know what that coach is like and what his or her philosophy is about basketball. And if there is a God, brothers and sisters, if there is a God who has created us and who expects things from us, we'd better be interested in what this God is like. So let's dive in. The identity of God. First of all, I want to say God is real. God is real. He's not a figment of our imagination. The very fact that we have this revelation from God indicates that God is real. Now, the reason I begin with what may seem like an obvious statement to many of you is that as I get around, particularly the academic scene today, as I hang out on college campuses occasionally and talk to people who are maybe professors and so on or people who kind of fancy themselves as having a theological bent, the popular idea in many circles is that God didn't create, create us, we created God. And it kind of harkens back to a philosopher named Ludwig Feuerbach who talked about us projecting things out there and, and calling it God. And so we create this imaginary being that kind of helps us with all of our hurts, habits, and hang-ups in life. Well, that sounds like a nifty little uh, idea, and I've read Ludwig Feuerbach's books, but I don't think that theory holds water. The fact of the matter is, we didn't create God, God created us, and if we were creating the God that is portrayed in the Bible, we, believe me, brothers and sisters, we would never have created a God just like this. We wouldn't create a God that expected so much from us. We'd create one that was a whole lot easier to kind of get along with and, and please, where the moral bar isn't quite so high. So uh, it doesn't matter what you might think or the, the God of your imagination might want. What matters is what the true God wants. Let's say that you get a notice in the mail that your registration for your car, or your inspection rather, is, is like overdue. And, and the notice, which comes from the county clerk or the Department of Motor, whoever sends these things out, let's call it the county clerk. If I'm wrong, you can correct me later, okay? From the county clerk, the, the notice says, look, you got 10 days to get this in or you're going to be fined $200. Whoa. Then you can sit there and say, well, my county clerk just wouldn't do that. Well, my county clerk would never find me. But quite frankly, it doesn't matter what the county clerk of your imagination would or would not do because there's a real one, and what matters is what he or she would do. And if you don't get that thing in, you're going to get a fine. So let me be blunt. It doesn't matter what the God of your Im imagination might or might not do. What matters is that the real God, what would the real God portrayed in Scripture do? Second, God is a powerful deliverer. In the words we read a moment ago, he said, I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. And in the bumper video, just before the message, you saw a little snapshot of the old movie Ten Commandments, which shows around Easter time every year. You probably see it as you're channel surfing. Charlton Heston, with face glowing, with white hair, comes down off the mountain with these two tablets and speaks with the voice of God. 
right? We've all seen that movie, no doubt, or at least part of it. And in the movie, it portrays what happened in the Bible, what, what really happened in space and time. God brought them out powerfully with a series of plagues. God did miracles. God led them with a pillar of cloud by day and with a pillar of fire by night. And he showed them his awesome power. God has authority. These people were ready to listen to God, some of them at least, after a while, because they knew that this God is a deliverer and he has authority and power. He has the power to destroy, as he did the Egyptian army, or the power to deliver, as he did the Israelites. Psalm 66.3 says, Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies cringe before you. But here's another interesting aspect of God's identity that that passage shows. God is a jealous God. Where do I get that? He said, don't bow down to other gods, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, let's be honest. That idea gives many people problems. Oprah Winfrey, for instance, herself, a woman who has so many things that I admire and has done so much good, but she will tell you, she's gone on record as saying, she heard one day that God is a jealous God. And she thought to herself, well, any God that's jealous is not really worthy of worship. And you know, we tend to think that way, don't we? That jealousy is this negative emotion. We think of it as something as being kind of selfish or, or kind of quibbling, right? Kind of petty. But let's imagine a wife that goes to her husband's wallet to, to borrow $20. And when she does, a picture falls out of another woman. And she confronts him with it and says, what is this? And he says, well, when you don't understand... I go to her, she understands. And when you won't listen to me, she listens to me. And and when you don't want to talk to me, I go talk to her because she is understanding and willing to talk. And he looks at her and says, you're jealous, aren't you? And she should say, of course I'm jealous. Because any genuine love should be jealous of anyone or anything that threatens that love. If there's not an appropriate jealousy there, something is incredibly twisted, listen, twisted and unhealthy about that relationship. But God's jealousy is a lot deeper than that husband or that wife's jealousy. See, God's jealousy is for our good because he knows this, that as we go chasing after those other gods out there and other desires, he knows they're going to leave us utterly bankrupt and empty. And so for our own good, God says, no other gods. I am a jealous God, and he desires, and listen, and deserves our total allegiance. Fourth, God is a just God. He said in that passage, I punish the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now listen, listen. That doesn't mean that God comes down and zaps a grandchild for the sin of the grandfather. Or the great-grandchild for the sin of the great-grandfather or mother. That's not what it means. But we all know how this works in generations, right? 
We know how the dysfunction of a family tends to get passed on unless somebody, by God's grace and power, breaks the cycle. You see someone who's abused, and you say, well, their father abused them. But you know what? It goes goes to figure because his father abused him, and then his uncle abused him. And this sin and this twisted sickness gets passed down from generation to generation. The sins of the fathers are being visited on the children, generation after generation. And finally, in terms of God's identity, God is a loving God. He says, but I show love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. We sing that wonderful song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And then there's that verse that says, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise. God says here, look, I'm going to show my love to a thousand generations. I'll show my justice, my wrath to the third or fourth generation. But my love is going to trump that. And I want you to know, brother and sister, that is great news today. That's why every one of these commandments is loaded, loaded with love. That's why every one of these commandments is not a legalistic, persnickety thing where God wants to kill your fun. He's not that kind of cosmic killjoy. Every one of these commandments is intended to provide and protect. They are dripping with love. But if we're really going to obey these commandments, we need need to not only understand God's identity, I think we need to spend just a few minutes talking about the supremacy of God. I want you to notice that with me. He said here in the passage we read, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, let's just get real for a minute. People in all kinds of cultures for centuries and centuries now have created and manufactured other gods. I mean, the Philistines had a god called Baal, and they put up Asherah poles and created shrines where people went and bowed down and worshiped the god Baal. The Egyptians worshipped the Nile River as a god, as a life-giving force. They worshipped it and practiced sacrifice. The Ephesians in the New Testament had a goddess. Her name was Diana. And people would shout, Diana of the Ephesians. Ephesus was known for the worship of this supreme goddess in their midst, Diana. The Ammonites in the Bible had a god named Molech. And they would take their children, particularly children that had abnormalities or some kind of imperfection. And they just didn't want the child and they would sacrifice their children in the fire to Molech. In 1986, I had a chance to fly to Taiwan I had a special assignment from the Billy Graham team. Something had gone wrong with 41 evangelists that we were trying to bring to a conference. And China and this part of the world, even though Taiwan had a lot more freedom than other parts of of that area in Asia, 
these evangelists had been stopped because something had gone wrong with their visas. And so they sent me to go try to figure this out and deliver new visas and try to, try to get it to work. And so I flew 25 hours to Taiwan, the capital city of Taipei. I met with Chinese leaders there. I, uh, they gave me a guide, a young lady who took me to the largest Buddhist temple in Taipei. And I was astounded by all the idols. There were hundreds of idols in this massive temple, and people were burning incense to them. People were praying to them. People took these little sticks that had two distinct sides, and they would pray a prayer and throw the sticks up in the air. And depending on how the sticks landed, it was like a rolling of the dice to see if your prayer was going to get answered or not. If they fell on the same side, it meant one thing. If they fell on both on the other side, it meant another thing. If they went on different sides, it meant something altogether different. Hundreds of idols. There's a temple in Kyoto, Japan called the Temple of a Thousand Buddhas. And in this one temple is 1,000 statues of Buddha. And here's what's unusual. Every single statue is utterly unique. And so people go into the Temple of a Thousand Buddhas in Kyoto and they find the God. They find the idol that looks most like them, they believe resembles them, and they can worship that idol. And for centuries, that's what humans have tended to do. We tend to create idols. Now, you know what I think? I think probably few of us listening right now have actually crafted an idol and fallen down and worshipped it. Maybe you have. I just don't tend to do that, all right? That, that hasn't happened in my experience. But, but you know what? That doesn't get us off the hook, does it? There's actually an old book. It was published in 1998. I guess that's old. It was written by a woman. I, 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 she had this talk show, and I wouldn't have expected that this book would be a scholarly kind of book necessarily or that it would be fantastic, but I was blown away when I read Laura Schlesinger's book. On the Ten Commandments. I honestly believe it's the best book on the Ten Commandments I've ever read. And I've read tons of them. I think it's the best book on the Ten Commandments I've ever read. Dr. Laura. Laura Schlesinger. I think a Jewish rabbi probably uh, uh, collaborated with her on the book, I believe. And his name is actually listed in the book. But one of the things she says there is there's all kinds of things we create as forms. Let me just mention a few that she mentions. One is superstitions. We break a mirror. Bad luck. Ooh, we feel weird. We feel paranoid. We walk underneath the ladder. Black cat walks in front of us. She says when we do that, we're in a left-handed way acknowledging some sort of power that has this power over us. And then she mentions horoscopes. I've known people in, in my own circle of influence who read their horoscope first thing every morning. They would not get up without reading their horoscope. Is this going to be a day of love? Or is this going to be a day of investments? Is this going to be a day of big, wonderful decisions? And they read their horoscope. Some have it sent to them every day online. Some have this email sent. It appears on their smartphone. Some read it in the newspaper. 
And then something happens that they go, oh, oh, it's just like my horoscope said. That's so wonderful. It's so exciting. And, and they're making an idol out of that. The Bible says this interesting verse. Let your astrologers come forward, those stargazers who make predictions month by month. Let them save you from what is coming upon you. Surely they are like stubble. The fire will burn them up. They cannot even save themselves from the power of the flame. You see, we shouldn't be looking to the stars to try to get our guidance, but to God Almighty. He should be our source of guidance and, and direction in life. I, I think there are people who virtually worship sports teams. I'm getting real close to where some of you are living right now. I mean, if your team loses, you're depressed for a week. You know it's true. That's maybe putting a little bit too much on a team, okay? Th these things shouldn't have that kind of place in our life. That comes to a point where that's almost like an idol, in our lives, there are all kinds of things that we can turn into idols. How about the earth? There's a wine ad that says, the earth gives us wonderful grapes. The grapes give us wonderful wine. The wine wins us lots of new friends. And then the advertisement says, thank you, earth. Thank you. There are people who literally engage in earth worship. The earth is not just a wonderful place that we're supposed to steward well, which is what the Bible teaches. Yes, we should take care of it and not trash it. But we should never worship the earth. The Bible actually predicts that that will happen in Romans 1. They worshiped and served the created thing rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. But you know what I believe is probably the greatest idol of all? And that would just be self. Just self. My God. And when people say that often, what they're saying is, this is just a projection of what I really want to be true. This is a projection of my desires. God says, no other gods. And I want to say really clearly today that people who go around saying that all religions are just the same, that is one of the most idiotic statements anyone could ever. Please don't ever be so foolish as to make a statement like that. They'll say, oh, no, no, they're really basically the same. Now, they've got a few peripheral differences along the edge, just minor things that are different. But at the core, they're really all the same. Are you listening? Just the opposite is true. There are a few trivial similarities between Christianity and other major world religions. Yes, they have overlaps with some moral teachings and things like that. A few trivial similarities. But at the core, they are dramatically different. You say, Pastor, how do they really differ? Well, they just differ on the nature of humanity, the nature of sin, uh, what is heaven, how do we get there, who is God, what is the nature of God. That's all. That's all they differ on. Just little things like that. Dramatic differences. 
God says, no other gods. He is looking, when we claim to follow him for supreme allegiance. And so as we go down home stretch today, I want to ask the question, how do we prioritize this? How do we really work to practically put God first, to get our priorities straight, as the title of this message says? How do we work to, to put God really first in our lives in a practical way? Well, I, I want to bring a, a little visual out here, and uh, we're going to do a little demonstration just to try to help us visualize what this would actually look like. So Jesus was asked this question, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So let me ask you a question. Thank you so much. As we do this little demonstration, let me ask you, what is, how are you doing with that? How are you doing with putting first things first, with actually prioritizing God in your life? I, I want to share with you an illustration that, uh, to me, kind of summarizes a lot of the things that we're saying. This container here, we're going to start filling it up. And so I'm going to put some big rocks in here first. We've got some nice river stones here. So I'm going to fill it up with these. And these are big rocks, so this thing fills up pretty quickly. Oh, my goodness. Now, would you agree with me? That's full. Right? I mean, that's brimming over, actually, with these big rocks, right? But, of course, the question is, is it truly full yet? So, I'm going to take here some pebbles, and I'm going to begin to pour these in. That makes a nice sound, doesn't it? And I'm going to pour these pebbles in and jostle them around a little bit. Now, is that full? You're on to me now, aren't you? You know, you know that it's not really full. Now we're gonna take some sand, right? And we're gonna begin to pour this sand, just some nice sand, shake it a little bit, so it goes down into the crevices. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, are we full or not? Whew, it's a lot of sand. It's amazing how much sand we can get in there. Whoop, there we go. And then we top it all off with some H2O. Let's see how this works. water goes down and fills in. I put too much sand in there. Now, some of you are asking, well, what's the point, Pastor Rex? And as I've done this demonstration literally with leaders all over North America, <laughs> believe it or not, I've done this illustration with tens of thousands of pastors, 
illustration comes right out of one of Stephen Covey's books. And I ask pastors, many of them have never seen it before. I say, okay, what's the point? And I get answers from the floor. And some people say, it's amazing how much you can cram into your life, right? Because this life represents, this container represents your life. And you get all kinds of answers like that. But the main point I want you to take away from this illustration is, you know what? If you don't get those big rocks in first, you're not going to get them in. If you fill your life up with little things that aren't nearly as important, if you do that first, you're not going to get those big rocks in, and you're going to make a mess trying. So what are those big rocks for you, those big priorities in life? Could I suggest just a few that if I were you, I would prioritize just as we wrap up? I'd suggest that you put your family and family worship as one of those big rocks. That you say, look, we're going to grow together in our spiritual walk. We're going to grow together in Christ. We're going to worship God every weekend together. We're going to come together with other Christians that are going in the same direction. And we're going to make that a priority. I, I would suggest that you give God the first minutes of every day. How about that one? I met God in the morning when the day was at its best, and his presence came like sunrise, like a glory within my breast. All day long the presence lingered. All day long he stayed with me, and we sailed in perfect calmness or a very troubled sea. Other ships were blown and battered. Other ships were sore distressed. But the winds that seemed to drive them gave to us a peace and rest. Then I remembered other mornings with a keen remorse of mine when I too had loosed the moorings with his presence left behind. So I think I know the secret. Learn from many a troubled way. You must seek God in the morning if you want him through the day. Now the author of that little poem wasn't trying to suggest that if we don't have a quiet time with God, God wants nothing to do with us the rest of the day. That's not the point. Here's the point. If you give God the first minutes of the day, before you read the newspaper, before you turn the TV on, before you check the weather, do anything else, if you just give God those first minutes, it's going to be amazing how the sense of his presence lingers with you the rest of the day because you've invited him. You've invited him. You said, Lord, I'm your partner today in this world. Where do we want to go today? What do you want to do in and through me? You know what I would suggest? I would suggest that you give God the first fruits of your money. Really. Makes all the difference. Deuteronomy 14.23 says, The whole purpose for tithing was to teach you to put God first in your life. That's the reason the people gave from the first fruits. And I would suggest that you make God the first and the last word in your decisions. You remember Zach, the guy I started with today? The guy who was cheating on his wife? Well, I talked to Zach that day, and he got really hot and mad. And Zach went ahead and divorced his wife, I'm sad to say, and created a tsunami of devastation for himself, his former wife, and for his kids. But how much better would it have been if the first time Zach felt tempted to be unfaithful, if he had remembered what the Scripture says? Flee sexual immorality. 
don't commit adultery. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And if he had obeyed that, he could have spared people and himself so much pain. How are you doing putting God first in your life? Years ago, before modern navigational tools, many ships used to have two compasses that they navigated by. One was down on the deck near the steersman where he could look at that as he steered the boat. But there was another compass that was fastened high up on the masthead. And occasionally, usually once a day at least, a sailor would climb up the masthead and look at that compass to determine if they were really going in the right direction. Somebody asked a captain once, why two compasses? And he explained, this is an iron vessel. And this environment down here can really affect this lower compass on the deck. And it can be a little off. And so we have the other compass up there. And the environment up there doesn't affect that compass. And we know that it's going to go true north. It's a lot safer and a lot more reliable. Can I tell you something? God's given you a a conscience, which is a wonderful compass to navigate by, but your environment and the way you've been trained influences that compass. It's always a lot better to go with the compass above, the Word of God, because it's not affected by your circumstances. It always points true north. It always shows you what's right. It's a whole lot safer and a whole lot more dependable. Father, thank you for giving us reliable moral standards to navigate by. And help us to fill our lives with the proper priorities. To get these big rocks, as it were, in first so that all these other things can fit in. You told us to do it. You said, Lord, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these other things will be added to you as well. Help us to live that out today as we put you first, because that makes all the difference. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Let's continue to worship today. Ushers, would you come and receive our tithes and offerings as we worship God? Safe in the God who never moves. 